The Public Money Pod is a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy. It's made possible in part by our sponsors, Build America Mutual, Cumberland Advisors, and the Government Finance Officers Association. State and local governments spend about $4 trillion each year. That's trillion with a T. Did you ever ask yourself, where does all that money come from? And where does it go? Who manages it? And what do citizens and taxpayers have to show for it? In this podcast, we explore the budgets, bonds, and bureaucrats at the heart of state and local government finance. This is the Public Money Pod. Well, welcome back to the Public Money Pod. I'm Justin Marlowe, joined as always by writer, journalist, bona fide fiscal policy wonk, Liz Farmer. Liz, welcome. Hi, Justin. Thanks. Always glad to be here. You know, it was uh, my turn in the Shire this weekend. We uh, <laughs> picked some apples of our own. No cider, at least not yet, but uh, lovely fall weather and a great way to get outside a little bit, thanks to the uh, Robertson's Family Orchard in Door County, Wisconsin. I love pick your own apples. Surprisingly up here, we are known for our apples and peaches in this part of Maryland, but there's like only one place that does within a 20 minute driving distance that actually does pick your own because everyone's, you know, they're, they're all businesses. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Everybody else in the country gets to enjoy, uh, gets to enjoy that produce, yeah. but not the locals. <laughs> well, yes, always a, always a fun uh, pastime in the fall. So uh, today we are talking about transit agencies, which is one of these really interesting stories, especially in the immediate aftermath of COVID. A lot of transit agencies are certainly then and even now are experiencing kind of an existential crisis of sorts. And we want to get into all of those issues with Dwight Burns, who is the chief finance officer for the Dallas area Rapid Transit Agency, or DART. He's going to share what's happening there and what's happening with transit agencies more generally. I mean, Liz, you and I have, have both looked at this. I know one of the, the data points that everyone likes to talk about when they look at where transit agencies were was in the immediate aftermath of COVID when the federal government opened up this liquidity facility, right? Made these loans available to state and local governments. There weren't many who took advantage of it. The state of Illinois did. Uh, but one of the high-profile examples of an agency that took advantage of the federal government's immediate help was the MTA, right, the Metropolitan Transit Authority in in Greater New York City. And you know, since then, everybody's been watching really carefully to see what's going to happen. You have this interesting confluence of trends. You have work from home. You have ridership that was in some places waning a little bit before COVID. You now have high inflation. You have lots of other things going on. You know, we've, we've looked at this too, when you think about where transit agencies are and how they intersect with a lot of the, the themes that we've talked about here on the pod, what comes to mind for you? Well, one of the first things I think about is um, what was transit ridership pre-pandemic and, you know, Nor New York, the New York area uh, was one of the, what was the, the largest area in the nation where people relied on public transit, something like one out of every three 
commuters to New York City uh, relied on some form of transit, mostly rail, right, um, but also bus and even ferry. <laughs> so <clears throat> another another city, though, you know, it's funny, we're, we're going to um, talk later with um, someone from the Dallas area, which isn't known necessarily for its high transit reliance, but everywhere in this country where there has been ridership has been affected to some degree. And I think the finance component of it depends on how much was your transit agency relying on ridership revenues, ticket revenues. And New York was was one area that relied heavily on it. So was San Francisco, the um, BART. Uh, not to be confused with DART. <laughs> That's BART with the B. <laughs> um, right. You know, right. and so uh, I've written previously about I think those two areas in particular were, you know, some of the most strained financially. But the New York area's ridership, the New York area's transit system relied heavily on ridership, used that financial, you know, aid from the federal government, went through it real quick. <laughs> You know, they right, still need more right. aid. Um, I, I believe, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but not only did the American Rescue Plan um, Act include additional funding for transit, you know, there there are some some options in the infrastructure bill. There's still aid, right? But what I'm looking at is, you know, how are these major metro area agencies going to adapt to this new climate where people aren't commuting as much? Even in Dallas, um, there's still a good number of people actually working from home. Right. And and I did some research recently on this and that was actually one of the areas that surprised me when was a significant amount of people still working up working from home. And so what does that mean in terms of where you're going to get your revenue? Um, if you can't rely as much on ridership, uh, do you rely more on subsidies? I mean, these are all all big questions that the agencies are going to have to look at. It was such a uh, such a catch twenty two. I mean, prior to really for the last arguably sort of fifty years, that's been the trend, right? We've we've taken transit and said that even though it has uh, a public function, it's an important economic development and community development and quality of life amenity. Nonetheless, it's we should try to have it pay for itself to the extent that it can pay for itself. And so, like I said, that shift toward ridership revenues has really been the the central story there, and we've seen many. Transit agencies do that well. Some do it less well. They still depend on some, like a general sales tax or some sort of subsidy or just something that taps into the fact that there's a broader public benefit than to just those who use it. But for the most part, mm-hmm. a lot of transit agencies these days are are really operated like businesses. But it's a it's a bad business in the sense that there's not a lot of potential for revenue diversification. You have customers that. In, didn't necessarily have a whole lot of choice before, but now many do. And then the issue, of course, is for those where ridership revenues are really central to their business, a lot of those ridership revenues are coming from underserved populations, are coming from segments of the population where you could make a strong case that there maybe ought to be some additional public subsidy or some kind of other broader support, and you may or may not have that. So it's a, it's a really, really challenging environment. And yet these systems are just so central, so essential to the economic development and and business communities in the communities that they serve. That's so true. And especially when you looking at economic development and who, who, who rides transit, primarily people who are, have service related jobs who are um, lower income. And, you know, all of this got really exacerbated during the pandemic. We just saw how much that that meant right um, for the functioning of our economy, really. Right. And so, when you start thinking about that, and then when you start thinking about, well, a lot of time, 
pretty much every time when you have a transit stop that tends to incentivize development around it. So this idea of transit as a public service is not far-fetched. I mean, I think it is. As you mentioned, it begs the question, how much should governments just be subsidizing it, you know, for the greater good? And and how much will that, will they ultimately get back, you know, through other ways? That's right. Yeah. What is, what does that ROI look like? And, and to what extent is that ROI measurable through traditional metrics like property values and other economic development metrics? And how much of it is more intangible stuff like access to better mm-hmm. quality jobs, access to, you know, shorter commute times, all of those sorts of things, which are measurable, but maybe don't, you know, quite get at exactly what that full ROI might look like. So these are exactly the sorts of questions that transit agencies are are working through. And in particular, they're finance folks and something that I know we have been and, and will continue to watch closely for the foreseeable future. We are fortunate to be joined now by Dwight Burns, who's the treasurer for the Dallas Area Regional Transit Authority, DART. He's been in that role for some time now and is uh, widely known as a leader in in transit finances, uh, particularly when it comes to the the capital investment and debt management side. Really pleased to have you, Dwight. Thanks for taking the time to join us today. Oh, it's great to be here, Justin. So we're talking about uh, transit agency finances, and there's some specific issues we want to get into, particularly as it relates to federal money, uh, the broader questions about work from home and what that means for your business model going forward. But just to start things off, wondering if you could talk about just where you're at financially right now. We've heard about different transit agencies and some of their financial challenges. Uh, if you had to characterize DART's financial position today and looking ahead, maybe you know the next year or two, what are you thinking about? Anything you can tell us about financial position for transit agencies more generally too. Sure, sure. So the, the financial position and, and opportunities for uh, transit agencies around the country uh, run the gamut, you know, broad spectrum. Specifically for uh, DART, uh, we are in a, a strong financial position because of two basic factors. One, the, the strength uh, of our economy, the ongoing strength of our economy. And then secondly, the strength of our of our sales tax base. About 80% of our uh, recurring revenues typically comes from sales tax. And we are part of a vibrant 3 million uh, population service area, 700 square miles, 13 cities. And we've experienced over the last few years, uh, even during the pandemic, at the nadir of of, uh, our sales tax returns, uh, our sales tax only dropped about 2% in fiscal 2020. Uh, that's about $12 million. That's a drop, basically, it was just a flat year, basically, for us. So it was really kind of an asset test for how strong uh, the sales tax base can be. So we were expecting in t- fiscal 23 to bring in about $819 million in sales tax. Uh, that, and that compares to about $50 million in fare box re- revenue or operating revenue overall. So you can see the juxtaposition of those. We're uh, we're just in strong in a strong shape. Ridership, as you would expect, is still less than what it was before uh, COVID. Uh, just as with most uh, transit agencies around the U.S., we're about across all of our transit modes, probably about sixty percent 
in terms of ridership from where we were before. We're still uh, moving over 100,000 passengers per day, a significant uh, passenger base and uh, movement of passengers. And right now, actually, we're, we're, we're going through our, our heavy season of the State Fair of Texas. I actually rode the train yesterday myself going to the fair. And so we got a hefty uh, increase in our ridership. So, of course, coming up then the Red River rivalry, Texas-Oklahoma, do you have a side in that? Do you have a, do you have a, a dog in that fight? Oh, I believe burn orange. Oh, yeah. Oh, there it is. Doesn't <laughs> <laughs> uh, matter what the outcome of the game is. We, we, I know what side of the Red River I'm on. So. Well, there it is. Well, we are, we're making news here on the podcast. <laughs> and so back to uh, just transit agencies in general. I, I believe that our uh, association of public transit systems, APTA, uh, put out some, uh, some verbiage recently saying that ridership is coming back, that overall transit agencies, and DART included, will, will have to uh, adjust. You're going to have a question to that effect later on. How are we going to adjust to changing commuter patterns and changing ridership? And well, We're ready for that. I think we're ready for that conversation. We were actually having that conversation even before the pandemic. I'm curious. So it's honestly, I was expecting you to say things were a lot worse. So this is good news. <laughs> um, but now with all the federal aid that has come in, how have you been? Is that a, is that a train? It I'm is. Not, that's Very really literally. appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> our light, yeah, our okay. light rail is right, is right next to our headquarters. That's right. That's great. Uh, so you, uh, you, you eat what you cook, as they say. That's right. That's great. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> So I'm curious then how the federal support has come into play here. Have you not needed it for operating? Has it gone into capital? What's What have you all done with it? Uh, federal support was substantial and it helped us through the lean times. Uh, we are not depending on the offset sales tax that uh, that we uh, have as a result of the COVID relief funds. We are not relying on those on that offset revenue to balance our books. We, the, the balance of the funds that, that offset funds that we have are being uh, discussed among the leadership, various leadership of our agency and our region to decide what, over the long term, what kinds of, of uh, enhancements we can make to our system and to mobility in general throughout our area. Uh, again, during the pandemic, it was a significant and welcome help to us. We received um, over 600 million altogether in COVID relief funding. Uh, it was specifically to, to offset operating, rep, operating expenses in general and uh, included unanticipated operating expenses uh, as a result of, the, of adjusting to the pandemic. We are now in a position where uh, we wanna make sure that we are relying on uh, balancing our recurring revenues and our recurring expenses without use of, uh, of that COVID relief fund. Uh, that's in, particularly important for this treasure you know, to make sure that we mm -hmm. maintain a balance and, we, and uh, we're doing that just fine. As a result of the CARES Act funding, the, uh, the so-called CARISA funding and the American Rescue Plan funding, we were able to weather the storm without, uh, without any layoffs. Without any, we did institute a, a vol volunteer retirement uh, plan during mm -hmm. uh, COVID, but that actually worked better than we thought it would because we, we lost a layer of a, a number of employees that we were that we were not anticipating, and that on top of that, and this is another challenge. Uh, this this is related to another challenge longer term, is that uh, we're having a heck of a time to uh, recruit 
the uh, requisite number of operators for our buses and trains and other modes, to a lesser extent, uh, administrative staff, police for our system. But that's going to be a continuing challenge for us as we compete with other commercial providers of, of transportation for those operators and police officers. That's not a function of whether we have money for them. That's just a, a function of the labor market and being, being able to compete for those. So that will be an ongoing strategic opportunity for us. Kind of building off of that, looking at the work from home environment, um, I, I recently did some research uh, that that looked at working from home in some of the major major cities. And Dallas was one of those cities where there's still a higher than than you know other major cities uh, average, which is you know kind of surprised me a little bit. But what I want to ask you is, given that you you're all your your revenue is a sales tax base mostly and, and not not as reliant on fares. How does you know work from home affect that, if at all? Well, it does it does affect us with regard to our primary goal, and that is to to serve as the the regional mobility provider of choice. We need to make sure that mm -hmm. we adjust the types of service we provide to make sure that we are relevant. You know, this we are serving a taxpayer in our region, and we want to make sure that that the services we're providing are being put to use by people uh, no matter what their needs are and the changing needs are. And uh, depending on the on the stats, depending on the source, I hear uh, similar to what you just said, Liz, that to some extent, you know, we still have a lot of hybrid work. We also keep hearing from other sources that uh, our metro area has a, a higher than average uh, return to work. It just kind of depends on maybe uh, how you slice and dice it. I rode the train in this morning from my home in the northern suburbs and uh, there's definitely an uptick in uh, commuter use of our light rail into downtown is it as crowded as it was before the pandemic oh no no i'm actually liking that though i can actually uh, have a seat all the way into it's about 30 miles all the way into downtown dallas but to your point yes we're seeing a, a change in commuting patterns we're seeing uh, just like most of the other metropolitan areas in the country where it's not just everybody's coming into downtown in the morning and everybody's leaving at the same time in the evening, the patterns all in between. And then also, one of the things that uh, the DART has been uh, demonstrating leadership in is uh, even before the pandemic, we were, were taking kind of a, a lead role nationally in implementing on-demand service in areas of our, of our uh, 13 city service area where we didn't have as much fixed route service. We have been assertively increasing uh, access to on-demand service that we can help provide through our GoPass mobile app. And it is actually kind of the cutting edge. A lot of transit agencies are looking to us to see, how are you doing that? And, and, uh, and so that's one way in which we're helping to make a, a shift in our uh, service, service provision is by, uh, providing a flexibility in the service in the form of that on-demand service. Interesting. Wow. So it's kind of a, kind of like Uber, but, but Dart, that's exciting. Yeah. Oh, literally both. Yeah. We can actually, you can actually use our, our mobile app and actually contact an Uber from, from one of our rail stations. And we, yeah, we have that's contractual cool. relationships, Uber, yeah, other, other folks, as well as contracting stuff. So can't beat them, join them. 
That's <laughs> right. Yeah. That's, to be clear, it's not an endorsement. Uh, no, I don't no. Think, I don't think Uber is a sponsor, but but interesting. So that's that's an interesting kind of adaptation on the operations side. Uh, to follow up on that, anything on the on the capital side that you're thinking differently about, particularly when you think about some of these. Given Dart's role, it sounds like in economic development more generally for the region. Any shifting priorities there um, as you're thinking about what what the post-COVID world looks like? Yeah, in the short term, no. Uh, the, the, our major capital improvement project uh, is a, a, a new commuter rail line uh, east to west in, in our northern portion of our service area from uh, the city of Plano all the way to DFW Airport. That's a line that's been in our in our long-term planning since the beginning of DART back in the late 80s. Slowed down a little bit because of a, a you know, year or so, a turn, a downturn. But uh, but yeah, we're on track and, and literally, no pun intended. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and we and we are moving forward to uh, getting that thing in revenue service and it's called the Silver Line Cotton Belt uh, Commuter Rail, billion dollar, oh, billion dollar project. And then over the medium term, uh, we're going to have to replace our bus bus fleet, our light rail fleet with buses. We well, we have decisions to make. Or right now they're all uh, natural gas. Uh, we need to figure out how much further are we going to uh, uh, to dip our toe into electric uh, buses. Kind of depends on the ongoing uh, improvements in battery technology. You know, we we have a a small number of uh, buses that are electric powered that we use basically as a circulator within the central business district. But to actually make that transition away from a natural gas uh, to electric, yeah, we're still having that conversation. Uh, but that's, again, that's kind of separate from any of the challenges that we're, we're facing these days economically or whatever. That's just long-term strategy. Longer term, our capital planning just continues and, and the actual determinations of, of what our infrastructure is going to look like for the longer term is uh, just going to depend on uh, ongoing discussions about what our role in the region should be. When you think about other challenges going forward or other opportunities going forward, you know, we've talked a lot about the workforce component, you know, you know in particular, anything you can say right now or any, any plans in the works to, to think differently about salaries, benefits, the kinds of tools that you might need to compete with uh, with the private sector to have the sort of talent that you need? We're actually adding a significant uh, amount of uh, salary expense uh, to our 2023 budget in order to be competitive. Again, operators, uh, police, uh, administrative personnel, and that's just an investment that we know that, that, that we need and, and we can afford it. So, so we're trying to trying to get ahead of it uh, to address the opportunities we have now and to get ahead of a future a future uh, competitive uh, strategy we need in, in terms of salary in terms of compensation in general so yes the, that is definitely that's definitely uh, one of our priorities going into this next fiscal year is there anything else that's on your mind especially as, as you're looking at the next opportunities potentially with the federal funding with the infrastructure act the inflation reduction act there's a lot of you know climate change type funding both in there and obviously for transit in the infrastructure act so i'm curious if there's any opportunities that you're looking at in terms of those that might benefit dart 
Sure. We were happy to see the uh, passage by Congress of a, a new five-year infrastructure plan. Uh, we do anticipate to see an incremental increase in the, the formula funding we receive and the, and the uh, availability of discretionary funding. We don't know exactly how much that will be, basically determined on a year-by-year -year basis. Uh, we're not going to rest on our uh, rest on our laurels with regard to just waiting to see how much increase uh, we get in those uh, uh, formula discretionary funds. We're going to be looking to maintain a fiscally conservative set of uh, budgeting practices for both our operating and our capital spending. Make sure we live within, we live within our means. Bondholders expect it. Tax holders expect it. And at the same time, with regard to how we contribute to improving our environment and to, to reducing our impact on, on the environment in general, that's just a natural part of our mission that we want to enhance going forward. Uh, we want to make sure that we, in, in general, uh, even beyond just helping people get where they need to go, providing uh, multiplier effects to economic development around the region, we want to make sure that the we help help make our our overall environment a better place. We we, we know that uh, we can be a significant part of making uh, improvements to uh, uh, how mobility can uh, uh, can address uh, climate change or respond to climate change, and that's one of the reasons that I enjoy working in this industry. One quick question: so inflation. Are you able to do the same projects? Are you having to think differently about projects that are in the works right now, given stuff costing more? Of course, uh, we've uh, experienced some increase in uh, in the cost of materials. Uh, we have, we've already talked about the uh, in, uh, adjusting to the uh, uh, increase in uh, the uh, being competitive for uh, compensation. But uh, so far, we've seen that uh, that uh, inflation has, has not uh, been prohibitive with regard to us uh, uh, moving forward with capital projects, with uh, paying for them. We, we're not adjusting uh, the amount of debt that we foresee we need to issue as a result of, of uh, increased capital costs. So we're, uh, we're in good shape in that regard. Good to hear. Well, thank you so much, Dwight Burns, for taking the time to join us here on the Public Money Pod. We really appreciate uh, your thoughts and your insights. And uh, thank you, as always, for all the important work that you do. Well, great. Well, Liz, Justin, it's been a, a great opportunity to speak with you all today. And go Longhorns. <laughs> Love to check our, uh, our our listenership in Oklahoma. and. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe put a sensitive information label on this podcast. <laughs> <in Oklahoma. laughs> Very good. Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate it. All right. Have a good day. Well, thanks so much to Dwight Burns from the Dallas Area Rapid Transit Agency for taking the time to join us here on the pod. Always a pleasure to have a chance to talk to people doing this stuff, especially in challenging environments like transit agencies. So wonderful insights from him, and we appreciate him taking the time. It's now time, as always, for our extra credit segment. These are audience questions, and we do our best to get to them. If you have a question, send it to us, and we will try to get to it. This week's question has to do with 
territories and their finances. Hi, my name is Johanna. I'm from Louisville, Kentucky originally, but I spent about six years in D.C. Uh, my question is, how is public finance different for places like the District of Columbia or territories? Thanks. Well, that is indeed an excellent question. We could uh, do many, many hours, I'm sure, of discussions about territories and their finances. It's like the territories themselves, their finances are similar, but also very different. We could probably talk at length just about Guam or just about the USVI or just about Puerto Rico. Uh, but I think there's a couple high-level points that Bear mentioned on the broad question of how are territory finances similar and how are they different from other types of U.S. state and local government finances. I think the, the best way to characterize, the way I've heard it characterized by people who have worked in the territories and have done financial advising and have done business with the territories is that territories face a really unique set of challenges. In some ways, they're kind of the worst of all worlds when it comes to state and local public finance. They have many of the characteristics of state governments and that they're operating state level programs like Medicaid, for instance. And yet they, and just like cities, they also have responsibilities to provide things like transit, basic transportation, public safety, uh, public health services. So they're, they're taking on all the challenging service delivery obligations of both state and local governments. And they also do that without many of the tools that state and local governments typically have. They may or may not have the ability to, to collect a sales tax that they control. They may or may not have an income tax that they have discretion over. They certainly receive some support from the fit from the US federal government, but maybe not as much as if they were a state or a locality. So they have all of the challenges and not nearly as many of the tools to do the kinds of work that they need to do. So it's a really uniquely challenging fiscal environment. Now, Liz, you have an interesting perspective on this, having been a DC Metro reporter and a public finance expert, certainly folks in DC like to draw some of these same comparisons. And you've also looked at some of these same issues in places like Puerto Rico. Uh, what's your response to the question, how are territorial finances different from uh, state and local governments generally? Yeah, so DC officials often like to kind of play the territory card when they are lobbying for, uh, you know, something where they want more, more control over their destiny, really. It continues to be fascinating to me, even though I'm no longer a local reporter there. I'm still in the larger metro area. You know, on the one hand, D.C. is a is both a, a city and a state. So they have all these responsibilities and a county, they say. So, I mean, there's all of those challenges, but also all of the revenue um, that they get. But it has, you know, much like territories, it does not actually have real representation in, in Congress. There is no, they have a representative who can vote in committee, but not um, on the floor and no senator, you know, so similar, you know, on the national level, it's, it's very much like a territory uh, in terms of what it can and can't do. I think one, one interesting link also between DC and Puerto Rico financially is when Puerto Rico back in 2017 was basically bankrupt, right? Couldn't actually declare bankruptcy. So they modeled legislation based on what Congress had done back in the uh, 90s, I want to say, uh, with DC. Right, right. And so essentially it was, yes, you can restructure your debt. Yes, uh, you know, here, you know, basically it allows them to do that. It, it, Congress has to approve of that. But it also installs um, a financial, in DC's case, a financial control board in Puerto Rico's case, it was very much similar, um, you know, made up of different sorts of people, but essentially the same thing, like this financial control board 
overshadowing almost everything you do. And we're still kind of seeing how that shakes out in Puerto Rico. It's a very different environment than it was in DC in the 90s. Uh, but for DC, the, I mean, their CFO was kind of the most independent, one of the most independent, powerful CFOs, you know, of any other city, because he has generally, a, you know, he or she in that position ha has autonomy. They have to be able to bless, you know, legislation. It has um, their their CFO in the uh, you know, mid 2000s, Nat Gandhi, who was who was there for a long time. Uh, and he was there when I was a, a local reporter. Uh, he was his his nickname was Dr. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, but at the same time, largely because of that, you know, the financial control board, then this really powerful CFO position. DC has had a great credit rating, you know, since uh, I'd say like the mid 2000s. And a lot of it is because of that, that history. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, the stories are fascinating when you hear from folks who were involved in some of those discussions around the first DC financial restructuring, which of course happened, ironically enough, right after Newt Gingrich and the Republicans took over Congress. They run on the contract with America. They run on this, you know, effectively anti-DC platform. And the first thing that Newt Gingrich yeah. does when he arrives is says, we're going to give DC everything that it needs to be financially successful because we do not want financial problems in DC to be a huge distraction to everything else that we want to do. And, and so you get all of the structure that they've been living in for some time now, and, and it seems to have served them, you know, very, very well. So yeah, very, very interesting bedfellows, you know, when you, when you start to get into these kinds of territory finances, and we've seen similar things in Puerto Rico. I mean, there were, as Puerto Rico's financial problems were really starting to take shape. You saw people like Paul Ryan initially running the Ways and Means Committee, but then eventually as Speaker of the House, saying similar kinds of things to what Newt Gingrich was saying in 1994, because they really did not want territorial finances to become a drag on the federal government's mm -hmm. overall financial picture. And and yet there has been some of that, right? But one of the huge concerns with territorial finances has to do with the way that they affect the municipal bond market. Right? Puerto Rico and all of the territories are unique in that they are triple tax exempt, meaning I can, as an investor anywhere in the United States, buy Puerto Rico bonds, and I will not pay on the interest that I earn from those bonds. I will not pay federal income tax. I will not pay state income tax, and I will not pay any local income tax, regardless of where I live, which is ironic because people who live in Puerto Rico actually pay their own versions of some of those taxes, but mainland investors who who buy those bonds don't. And so those bonds have been very, very popular for a long time because they they have high yields because there's been some concerns about their financial position, and yet it's completely triple tax exempt. So there are major institutional funds that own a lot of territorial debt, and we're maybe aware of some of the underlying financial problems, but maybe not fully aware of those underlying financial problems. And one thing leads to another, and you start to see pressure in Puerto Rico and the territories putting pressure on municipal bond funds generally and having that ripple through the entire municipal bond market. So territories are, are they get a lot of attention for all these reasons. They face some unique challenges, but we continue to see them work through those challenges and try to figure out what, a, what the course forward looks like for them. Great question. Again, we could talk about territories all day, but uh, that's the, that's the high level overview from us. Thanks again. And Again, if you have questions for extra credit, please don't hesitate to send them our way. The 
Public Money Pod is a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy and is made possible in part by our sponsors, Build America Mutual, Cumberland Advisors, and the Government Finance Officers Association. To learn more about the center, check out our website, municipalfinance.uchicago.edu. If you'd like to ask a question for our extra credit segment, send a voice memo to publicmoneypod at uchicago.edu. To see more of Liz Farmer's work, visit her website, farmersfieldonline.com and her Substack, which is substack.lizfarmer.com. And you can also find her at Twitter at LizFarmerTweets. And thanks as always to our esteemed producer, Eric Gaber. If you like the podcast, be sure to follow us, drop a review, and tell your network. That's all for now. We'll catch you next time.